the trouble in Halloween special. Listen if you dare. The Hole Below the Fire by Kenneth Allen. October is a peculiarly cantankerous month. It's the month that squeezes everything out of the day with a sun that burns extra hot, but can't keep the chill out of the shadows or the evening wind. And the night reluctantly cools so that you must turn your collar up against it. It is the last breath of Indian summer, and as it exhales, fog and rain upon the land, October extinguishes the last fires still burning in the forests and mountains, just as we light new ones in the fireplaces of our own hearths. It is a last picked-over harvest of tomatoes, figs, apples and squash, pears and persimmon, bloating on their wizened, dying vines. Next month will be canning and dried fruits, but in October, you can still pick and eat, pick and eat right off the vine, after first picking off the odd bug or worm. It's the last time to hit the ball around barefoot and dig your feet into the outfield grass. The last time to play shirts and skins pickup games. It's the last time to get a decent cup of coffee before everything is tainted with pumpkin spice. October is the last smile and wave from a summer lover just before she turns and boards the plane ride home to Duluth or any other cold oblivion to hibernate through the winter. October is when you can feel the harvest of death draped over everything. It is everything. If you were to take the withering trees and the waving Timothy Hay, and shirts lying on the blacktop, and balls being hit into the outfield, and like a movie pull back to see all of these things, the image would be of a skull, its bone made of empty beaches, with one lone ant of a man ambling along the jawline strand, its eye sockets twin-setting suns, burning furnace red at sundown, its teeth gravestones of the old cemetery next to the abandoned playground. We all feel it to some extent. We sense death in the smoky, fermented wind, in the shadows too dark for midday, and the eyes peering from those shadows when we watch night fall upon the land. We feel it, and so sacrifice to it, carving death's face into a pumpkin. We harvest red hots and sour sweets and apple beer and shout loudly that evening, lighting candles and firecrackers, all in a ceremony to stave off death with talismans and rituals. Most of the time, it works. 
you know it works because nothing bad happens to us. And we forget that we did those incantations, which may or may not be superstition. Batten down the hatches, buckle your coat jackets, and light the hearth when the morning comes knocking, cold and corpse-like. And in this way, summer breathes its last breath on the gale that brings the first frost. It was like this in Rio County of old. But lately, summer in its heat has been lounging about longer, like a derelict drifter, knowing they aren't welcome any longer, but finding the environs too irresistible to pass up or pass on. Not too terrible for most people, and not noticed by most, except by firefighters. As summer lingers longer, so too linger the wildfires eating the countryside alive. Animals that have begun to stockpile for the winter find their warrens suddenly overtaken in flame and smoke and become fuel for the inferno. Trees that have all but died of dehydration suddenly become kindling to be swept up through and scattered into the hectic winds. Fire crews embark on strike teams just when football and comfortable firehouse couches call to them to recline and be entertained for a season's job well done. Crews find themselves once again out on the fire ground, bleary-eyed, mealy-mouthed, unshowered, underslept, and with the task to stop the hellfire leviathan one more time. Winter animals, the ones that prowl and crouch and await prey, have already ascended upon the land. This is no place for soft, pink, tired, hairless creatures to scramble about, putting out this flank or that. They have fought valiantly all spring and summer and should be back in their cities, responding to deep-fried turkey explosions or weed-whacker mishaps. Instead, they remain on the burning battleground for one last foray into the flaming maw of the conflagration and all the beasts who dwell within. Bob Symes was a born trucker. He had been detailed to the Wildland Company as a favor to a younger captain who had wanted to get some truck time for his upcoming quarterly evaluations. Bobby was ornery, but nothing more than accommodating when it came to people he liked. And he liked the new guy enough to slide over to the Type 3 wildfire-equipped engine for the day. That was why, when the call came out for the 500-acre fire in Sarah Valley, he took a deep breath, groaned to himself, and said, That's what I get for being a nice guy. His crew left at 1300 that afternoon, having just eaten lunch. They piled into the rig, their bellies full, throwing off their balance and making it hard to tie the laces of their wildland boots. With a sarcastic bon voyage to the contented truck crew, who was still sitting at the table, picking their teeth clean, watching the Niners lose, the crew headed out. It didn't matter that the Niners were losing, so long as they got to comfortably watch in zero gravity and a lazy boy, 
in an air-conditioned room. The crew that returned at 04-09 the next morning was not the same crew. They looked like they had when they left, but in physicality only. What they had been through those 15 hours had changed them forever, one more so than the rest. They returned home as three rather than four. The fourth, a probationary firefighter and the youngest on the crew, had been transported to Rio County General for extensive burns and animal bites. When Bobby told the story, he only pieced together meaning from a schizophrenic recall of a horror beyond that which any of us could imagine or believe. During the critical stress debriefing, Bobby listened patiently, staring off into the distance, occasionally looking at the other two of his crew and shaking his head. They looked pale as wax figures, their eyes sunken and forsaken. Several times, Mike B. dropped his head into his hands and wept. Vincent Avoy flung an arm around his friend, and there it draped through the entire long-drawn-out meeting. Bobby alternated his gaze between them and the window which looked out towards the east, where miles away the fire still burned unchecked by their efforts. Finally, when I was finishing up with my counselor's speech, how it was all confidential and none of this would be related to admin or any higher command, I kept fishing, and finally Bobby spoke up. By all accounts, Toby is alive and doing fine in the ICU, I said. They're treating him for burns and injuries, and they believe he'll pull through. I just want you to know, I said, that we can't even comprehend what you all went through, but we're here to listen. Is there anything you would like to talk about now while I'm still here and it's fresh in your mind? There was silence and long stares by all the crew. Mike's sobbing was silent, but his broad shoulders shook in paroxysms of tears and heartbreak. They looked to their captain as if waiting for him to tell the story. They were younger. He was their captain. He was their leader. And they wouldn't speak if he did not. It wasn't a bear or a mountain lion that fell on Toby. The crew became animated and began breathing harder. Mike B. grunted a cry that was primordial, purely animal-sounding that expressed in one breath terror, aching sadness, and relief all at once. Okay, I said, what then? Do you want to talk about it? It wasn't an animal that mauled Toby. It was a man. At least it looked close to a man more than anything else. You were assaulted? Was it a drifter or something? I don't know. I don't know. Tears fell down Bobby's face. To see that man shed a tear was like watching a Grecian marble sculpture cry. What follows next is for our eyes and minds only and should be kept from public or department records henceforth.
We were sent to cut line on the leeward side of the valley, way out of the draw that we had to seek refuge in finally. We had to go there. I know it was the last place we should be. We all did. But the wind shifted and we had to go. Damn it, where else could we have gotten to? With that little time and the heat and the smoke. He looked at both of his crew, but they gave no agreement or dissent. Vince kept his arm over Mike, who didn't look up. We were caught on three sides, and you could hear trees not just lighting, but exploding. The fire had reached the canopy overhead and was racing us, and we ditched the rig, ran full stop up the hill. Toby was in front, God bless him. Animals were running out of the woods, fleeing the front. A squirrel on fire and a deer actually ran past us going up the hill, and I honestly thought it was a good idea to follow in that direction, like maybe they knew something that we didn't. So help me, Christ. Bobby paused and was looking back out the window in the direction of the fire. He sat for a long time, seeming to mourn, recalling his thoughts. He finally came back to us. We were running up the side, banking towards the hip. We could see about 200 yards to our left. And then Toby says, look, there's a house up there. And I saw what he was talking about. It was a cabin, like an old sodbuster hut built into the hillside, made out of felled timbers. The back wall was built into the hill itself. Well, shit. Big timbers, maybe shelter against the back wall, I figured, and this fire coming. And Darius, I'm telling you, the wind and the sounds that fire was making charging towards us. It sounded like a tornado. I couldn't hardly hear my own shouts to the guys. It was whistling through the forest, and, and it sounded like screaming, like screams. Screams of the burning trees as they were eaten up by the fire. Bobby looked into the distance, perhaps hearing that sound again, his lower lip fearfully quivering. Tears began to roll down his cheeks, patting his pants softly. It was the only place that would keep us alive. I was thinking, stay in the house, let the fire pass overhead, wait it out, and then move on once the fire died outside. He shook his head and whispered just audibly, so help me God. He buried his head in his hands and was motionless. Cap, I said, it sounds like it was the best, it was the only thing you could do, the right thing to do, I reassured him. His head still resting in the palms of his hands, shook side to side slowly. No, Darius, no. So we get into that hut. The door isn't even a door, but some old wood slab that fell off pegs a hundred years ago. We propped it in front of the doorway and stuffed it into the threshold. I wanted to cover the doorway with my emergency blanket, but decided to hold on to mine because we all would need to deploy them as soon as the fire reached the hut. It's fucked because you know you got to take shelter in them and wait the fire out underneath them. But I was constantly thinking about the overhead beams in that hut. If they fell on us, we'd be trapped under the timbers, stuck in our shelters like charcoal briquettes at the bottom of a barbecue. So I pulled my shelter out and told the guys, get yours ready. If I need to, I'll throw mine over the door and the rest you get inside yours. 
And that's when Toby said, look, the back wall goes into a hole in the earth. Bobby Symes' voice cracked and he stopped speaking. He stared for a long time out the window, collecting his thoughts or recalling exactly what had happened or silenced by what had happened. We looked into the hole, cut into the back wall, which actually looked like it had once been a mine shaft or tunnel or is a tunnel or whatever the fuck. There was a rag of burlap covering the hole and it was rustling because there was a breeze blowing out from the darkness. The smell coming out of it, Vince spoke up. He had taken his arm off Mike's shoulder and he had woven both of his hands tightly into his lap. Remember the stink? Darius, I figured whoever had been living there had recently crawled down that shaft and died. You know the smell, Darius. Of course I did. How many wellness calls had I been dispatched on because a friend or loved one hadn't heard from the person in days? Or worse, someone passing by the house smelled something inside. They're smelled before seeing these long dead. Old farts, rotting hamburger meat, gassy sweet, repugnant. I nodded to Vince. But this was worse. With the smell of petroleum and wet, rotting wood and scum, as if the earth itself was rotting. The wind was heavy and his brow creased, thinking. He shook his head. It was all so hot, like an exhaled dog breath. I knew something was wrong right then and there. Bob answered his plea. I know, what else could we do? I knew we were fucked one way or another. I thought God had saved us. I saw it as our saving grace, no matter how bad it smelled. I thought, what if it smells like a dead animal's asshole? It's a way out. It's a place to wait it out. As this cabin burns up, we got a place to, place to hide out. Bob and Vince both looked at each other. Mike wiped his eyes and was once more present with us. Toby and I went in first. I told him to follow me in because I had a flashlight. Mike said, stabilizing himself in one deep and sighing breath. I figured that I was the biggest and someone had to go in first, so... His head nodded sideways in a manner that expressed reluctant guilt for what had happened to Toby and the rest of them. I'm always doing that shit, charging into things I should think about first. Mike, it's not, the others began. I know, I, but I went in first, and I told Toby to follow. It was me. The place was obviously some animal's home or den, or whatever you call it. There were animal bones on the ground. They cracked under my boots. I told Toby to hang for a minute while I looked around. The hole went way back beyond where the flashlight beam could reach. There was dirt and rock walls carved out that had been reinforced with some old rough sawn wooden cribbing. It must have been built a hundred years ago for mining. or I don't know. But it was man-made initially. There were, what do you call them, sconces on the sides of the walls, and a couple still had gas-burning lights in them, all rusted and decayed. There was also a string of overhead lights retrofitted down the middle of the ceiling, but all the bulbs were fogged over or busted out. 
And there was a sound of chains tinkling down in that hole. And I could hear when the wind blew to us. God, that smell. Mike shuddered, revulsed all over again. There was a slaughterhouse in my hometown when we were children, fifth grade, I think. We actually had a field trip there. Can you believe they actually would send kids to a slaughterhouse for a field trip? I remember the actual smell of the killing floor. The smell of all stages of death, like the iron smell of blood. Oceans of blood that flowed through the sewage grates in the middle of the floor. Old meat, like a black decaying stink that you can't wash out of the shadows in the corners of the slaughterhouse. You could smell hay and cow patties. The cattle probably shat, scared to death, being let in one by one. That's what the hole smelled like. It was like the abattoir of the earth. As much as that smell repelled me, warned me, stay out. I mean... What choice do we have? Bobby jumped in now, saying, Not your fault, Mikey. I'm the captain. It was my fault, that kid's. Toby's hurt. Bullshit, Vince said. It's my fault. I saw it back there when the light hit it, Mike. I saw them reflect back in the beam. But I didn't say anything. I thought it was metal glinting in the light. I wasn't thinking it was an animal. I could have warned you guys. I didn't realize it. I didn't... I didn't even think they might be eyes. Then they all start arguing with each other, trying to take the blame for Toby being injured. And the thought occurred to me, in what profession do you have guys fighting to take responsibility for screw-ups? You wouldn't get that in any corporate job. Everybody passes the buck. Not firefighting. We step up to the chopping block and voluntarily lay our heads on the business end. Go ahead, swing away to the axeman. It's on me. And the other guy says, bullshit, it's my fault, and fights to take the blade. We're chock full of stoic idiocy. Let's not worry about that now, I say. Why don't you explain what happened next? And Vince starts back in. I saw the light hit something just beyond the beam and reflect it back to us. Like a dog or cat's eyes do. I just thought it was something shiny down there. Maybe the other end of the tunnel. or I, I don't know. I just didn't think much of it. I hustled past you guys and Toby... And about 15 feet beyond, came into a circular spot like a place for people to pass one another if one had a wheelbarrow and was heading in the other direction, you know? About 10 feet wide, I'd say. I heard the sound of what I thought was wind rasping down the tunnel. But I think, I believe now, it was the thing breathing. It was like a breath passed through a snarling mouth, guttural, Ululating. Big cats and alligators make that sound. And that's when I thought it might be a mountain lion, and it all clicked for me. I told you guys to hold. There was something down there. I told you to shine the light down there. Mike nodded. 
So I shine the light again, and this time the reflected lights are bouncing and blinking. Mike starts sobbing again. And it hit me. Whatever it is down there, it's running. It's running towards us. He broke down and began speaking through his tears and snot. And it saw us, and it was charging out towards us, making that hissing sound and bounding down the tunnel. Mike stared in the distance in petrified terror, reliving the moment again, seeing the thing coming. He screamed a sharp, horrified yelp. The room was silenced by the sound. A shiver froze my neck and back. I tried to swallow. Couldn't. Vince and Bobby blanched a bloodless white. Bobby finally picked up the story. I saw it come into view. It was much too tall to be a cat, I thought. I couldn't believe my eyes when it appeared from the darkness. It was a man. No, it was the shape of a man, man-like. It walked on two legs. Arms were extended out like a crucified man. Or an animal about to pounce on prey. And it was wearing clothing. Or at least rags of what once had been clothes. It was bald, blazing red-gold eyes, enormous baseball size. And his mouth... Bobby was now working his mouth to form the words, attempting to swallow, but finding only soot and ash in his throat. When he spoke again, his words came out croaking and near tears. You said alligator. The mouth was as wide as the mouth of an alligator. So many teeth. The corners of his mouth looked like they had been torn open by the teeth. The mouth had grown beyond the stretch of its skin and then torn up to his ears on both sides. The teeth bit into the jaw and cheeks. Fangs, interrupted Mike. There were fangs, needle-pointed fangs. Every one of them, white and glistening in the flashlight beam. It looked like the mouth was eating into the rest of its face. I dove into the corner of the cutout area we were standing in, and when I looked back, Toby was still standing over me, just staring, surprised. He hadn't seen the thing coming or was too shocked to move. Whatever reason... For whatever reason, he didn't move, said Vince, and the thing tackled him, knocking him off his feet. Toby and the thing landed at our feet, he pointed to Bobby. Vince was the crew's medic, and he spoke with a clinical, emotionless tone, the way a paramedic is trained to speak. When, for instance, he has to tell the wife of a deceased lover, we've done everything that we can do, but your husband has passed away. I'm so sorry. It was a practiced, calm tone that held his panic at bay. It crouched on top of Toby, looked over at me, and bared every one of those pointy motherfucking fangs roaring, and then sunk his face into the kid's guts. Toby started writhing around in agony, screaming for help before any of us could get to him. I was stone still. I couldn't move fast enough, and this thing tearing through Toby's coat and stomach. Vince was swallowing down vomit that threatened to lurch up from disgust. He won the battle for the moment, he continued. 
It was Cap who acted first with the Pulaski. I swung the Pulaski and caught the thing on the back with the axe head. Its head came off Toby, mouth full of blood and Toby's guts spilling down his side and onto the ground. I hit him with the McLeod tool, but the thing grabbed the handle and snapped it like kindling, said Mike. Finally, Cap hit him about three times with the ads end of the Pulaski on the back and the shoulder and the neck, and the thing finally stopped holding the kid down and ran off down the tunnel. It was bleeding, a kind of dark green blood. I think it was blood, but it's not blood that you know of. You could hear it growling and yelping like a coyote down there in the darkness way off. Cap wouldn't leave the tunnel. So he stood guard until we could drag Toby out, back into the hut. Vince continued. He was screaming, don't let me die. What the hell was that? And he was crying. We tried calming him, reassuring him, trying to put pressure on the wounds. It was a huge bite out of his gut, and the avulsion was bleeding down his flanks, soaking his shirt and pants. The intestines were actually moving little wave-like spasms. His throat worked again, and his lips curled. The fire had reached the cabin, and the smoke was banking down in the room. We had to crawl around on hands and knees. It was completely involved outside, so we had to wait it out in the cabin. Mike wouldn't let go of Toby, so we wrapped them up together. We used socks and our bandanas and Toby's shelter to bandage the open wound. We were able to stuff the intestines back in, and Mike held them in place for Toby while the storm passed overhead. We covered them in his shelter and then threw on our own. But the whole time, that thing in the back of that damn... I was goddamn certain the thing would come back to find us. So I just sat in that shelter, wearing it like a hood. Sure as shit, about 20 minutes later, I saw those blood-filled eyes peering out of the darkness just beyond the opening. I started screaming, get out of here! Shaking my foil shelter, making myself bigger, the way you're supposed to if a bear's coming. I had my K-bar out, which felt like a toothpick and a Swiss Army knife compared to what that thing was packing. Just through the smoke, I saw its hand slowly push the burlap blanket away from the hole opening. The claws, I swear to God, were two inches long at least, and yellowed with black under them. It had long, spindly fingers, almost spider legs. Then the smell of it came again, and there was something deeper under that smell of decay, something primal and wild, infected but vital. I kept shouting at it, telling the guys to stay down, all the while trying to get a glimpse of what it was wearing. Finally, Cap says, stay where you are, and he got up to check outside. When he comes back, he says, pack it up and carry Toby to the rig, that we're making a break for it. That's it. We headed towards the highway, treating the kid. Whatever it was is still in that shack, waiting out the firestorm. I didn't know what to say.
Do you suppose that maybe... Do you suppose it was maybe a cat or bear or something? That's what you're thinking. Well, I was, just because, you know, in the darkness down in the cave, with all the stress and the heat of the moment, if you'll pardon the expression, Cap, a park ranger uniform, Vince said. It was wearing a park ranger uniform. Beneath the grime and blood, torn nearly to rags, it was the uniform of a ranger. Remember that ranger that went missing about two weeks ago? Bobby looked pleadingly at me. The one scouting around the Sarah Valley fire? Naga, uh, Naga Tomi. Nagashima, I said. Yeah, the guy they think was run over by the fire. No, he wasn't, Darius. I think that thing out there was, is him. But how? I don't know. It's either him or this thing has put on his fucking uniform. You take your pick at whichever is less crazy. Vince stared off towards the fire in the distance, still blanketing the valley in smoke and flame. Nobody goes back to that hut, commanded Bobby. And if you tell anyone else about this, you won't be walking right for a month, you understand? You gave your word. It's not going through chain of command, of course, I said, not agreeing to maintain complete radio silence exactly. I knew a group who would be very interested in hearing about this encounter, hear about it, and act on it the way it should be handled. And what happened next, I said, trying to move on without second thoughts. We drove out of the woods Almost rolled the rig off the road a couple times while I worked on bandaging Toby's wounds and getting an IV, said Vince. He had lost consciousness by then and was hypovolemic to the point of complete exsanguination. From there, we drove with lights and sirens to Rio County, about five miles away. I thought he'd be dead once we got there, but it sounds like you saved him after all, I said. No, Vince said. It wasn't me. The wounds had stopped bleeding by then, and the intestinal lacerations looked smaller in stages of healing compared to when we left the cabin. Also, Toby's teeth. Daryl this time couldn't go on. His mind struggled with the incongruous, unbelievable anecdote. He shook his head. What about the teeth, I said. His teeth were falling out. No trauma to the face or gums, no bite by that thing to his face, no fall on it. But his teeth were falling out of his mouth as we carried him into the ER room. They were hitting the hospital tiles, making little ceramic tic-tac noises on the floor. What do you make of that, any of you? There was a long, breathless silence in the room. The men had all noticed the teeth they had not come to terms with what it might mean, what it might portend, until that very moment. We sat in the room for ten minutes more, me asking if there was anything else. They seemed to have become anxious all over again, the way one gets when the hurricane alert broadcasts a shelter-in-place warning for your area, the way soldiers would get when they faced one another across a battlefield. 
the way these crewmen must have looked hearing the fire change direction and begin barreling down on their position with the sound of treetops exploding into flames, branches falling at its head, animals on fire, running their way. Something had happened in the woods that had not been finished, had possibly just begun. It was unspoken and hung like a reaper in the room. It wasn't until coffee the next morning that I heard the news. There had been an animal mauling at the hospital. A nurse had been gored to death just outside the doors to the ICU. As for Toby, there was no trace. He had gone missing from the hospital sometime during the night. <laughs> 